0: It's good to see all of you guys here. It's great. To, yeah, great to be able to continue on this journey uh, through Micah uh, with you guys. Um, I want to begin this evening um, by actually reading to you the third chapter of Micah, which is what we're going to be looking at tonight. Um, but rather than just reading it, um, it's important to know when Micah kind of when we compiled this book that we call Micah, it wasn't that like Micah wrote down and sat a whole bunch of letters and then just posted them off in the mail to everybody like. All the things we find there were him delivering these vocally. He went and looked them in the face and said these words to them. And so instead what I've done is I've taken the third chapter of Micah and I've just slightly tweaked it a little bit so that it has conveys some of that feeling that the original listeners will have heard. So let me read this to you. Listen up. I'm talking to you. You leaders, you politicians, preachers, purveyors of the law and keepers of justice. See, you talk a lot, but I'm beginning to think you don't know what you're talking about. See, you're supposed to protect us, but you are tearing the people apart. You skin them alive, you rip the meat from their bones, you grind them to dust and then sprinkle them like seasoning over some sick neo-capitalist stew. This can't go on forever. This won't go on forever. See, one day you'll reach out to God. You'll bow your head and you'll ask his blessing, but he won't answer you on Sunday because he knows what you did last Monday. And this goes double for you, you preachers and self-proclaimed prophets whose words are slicker than your greased back hair. Oh, you speak beautifully as long as the offerings are coming in. Every new donor is a reason to proclaim God's favor, but I know the truth. I know what you've got. And I know what'll happen when the cash flow stops. Your honey-tipped tongue will turn to venom and your God bless you becomes your God damn you. And see, that's why you're going blind. You claim to see God, but his son has set on you. You couldn't see what he was doing if it smacked you in your self-righteous, self-centered, scented, oiled faces. You're too in love with your own voice, with your donors, with your reputation. So your light has been snuffed out. Oh, God will be doing things, but you're gonna be left confused and guessing, hiding behind lame excuses to cover up your own ignorance. Oh I, you ask. Oh, I should have more respect when dealing with God's anointed. Well, you're right. I'm just some nobody from the regions. But the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me and every muscle in my body, every tendon holding me together is shaking with his justice and his might. So forgive me if I don't sugarcoat this for your pompous, precious, privileged ears. You lead a great nation, but you spit on our story. You twist every law and statute to suit yourself. You're building skyscrapers with the bones of our people. And you expand joyfully on the stolen land, holding some piece of paper as if it makes that right. Judges are selling verdicts to the highest bidder. Priests mass market their teachings to franchise their influence, and the prophets, they'll bless anything for the right price. All this while you sit here in church, or you fill up these pews with your hands folded and your heads bowed, singing songs of his faithfulness. Oh, all things work together for good, you say as you clap one another on the back. Oh, he really is a good God to entrust you with so much. Oh, he has a plan for you, a hope for you, to prosper you. But he won't. He won't. Because of you, all these skyscrapers are going to be leveled. This city is gonna be plowed like a field. This altar that you have built for yourself will be burnt. For I would rather have this church burned to the ground, every window smashed, every pew burnt, every table wrecked, than let it remain one more day as an excuse for your own sick sense of entitlement, says the Lord. So who said that the Old Testament was boring, eh? Let's pray. Lord, as we read into your word, help us to see to truly see who you are and who you are calling us to be. Amen. Well, that's a bit of a heavy to start on. Um, sorry about that. Let's go to something lighter. Um, so the other day, when I probably should have been working on this sermon and I was blatantly procrastinating, I was trolling through Facebook. And on Facebook, you know that there are those certain articles that are like, here are 10 amazing facts that you never knew. Number seven is outstanding. You know those articles? Yeah. You know how, you know inside you should never click on them because they're just clickbait and they're just a way of selling ads. And you know it's not good for you, but blatantly when you have nothing better to do, you click on them because you kind of want to see what number seven was. Um, As I was going through that, I, I got to one of these facts and it kind of, It was one of the rare ones that kind of, it just blew my mind a little bit. And it was one of the facts that it goes through is it said, for all of us, in all of our fields of vision right now, you can actually see your nose. (laughs) Let it ripple. (laughs) Take a quick look down and realize that right here in your field of vision, you can see your nose. Close one eye. Oh, there it is. Close the other one. There it is. Open your eyes. Now you can't unsee it. See, it's there, it's right there. And what it is, is that your brain always has this in its field of vision, but because you have these two eyes, your brain basically sees the nose as irrelevant and realizes that it needs to see through it to the things below it, it's more important. So the thing that your brain considers irrelevant, it actually almost just emits from your vision. Unless you're actually looking for it, 99% of the time we're looking around and we actually can't see our noses, even though it's right on our faces. Right? Your brain creates a blind spot over the thing it doesn't think it needs to see. And these blind spots don't just happen in our faces, they happen everywhere. There are constant blind spots that each and every one of us will have, right? Because not every one of us can see everything perfectly. So in anything, in our preferences of music, in our politics, and especially in our theology, there are going to be blind spots. And so tonight, I want to talk about one blind spot that has plagued our tradition, um, especially our tradition, quite badly. Um, So if you are a Baptist, uh, historically, this has been a large blind spot for you. If you are an evangelical or even just a Protestant, if you come from any of those traditions or if you don't know what any of those words mean, but you've ever said the word personal relationship with Jesus, like if you've ever said that phrase, then chances are, you come from one of these traditions. And the blind spot that is often carried through us as a church has been around this issue of justice. We've constantly struggled with it and it's constantly been a blind spot on our faces. Now, justice will often have different connotations for many of us in this room. Even now, seeing that word up there, some of us will have different reactions. Some of us will be really stoked and be like, oh yeah, justice, it's really important. It's freeing the impressed, it's liberating people, it's really good. Um, but chances are, I wonder if for many of us, particularly me growing up, justice doesn't always have wonderful connotations. Like, it's not like a nice thing. When I think about justice or judgment, it's kind of those mean aspects of God, right? And it makes me think about things like this, right? You know, those Christians that, particularly in America, will stand on the edge of the street and be really angry and hold signs saying, God hates you or God can't wait to see you burn in hell we have often have this theology that God is just always so angry with us because of our sin, right? We looked at porn alone in our room, and now God's so angry with us, he can't wait to burn us in hell. But thankfully, Jesus came along, and he got rid of angry God, and now he made nice God because he took the punishment for us. And often, that's how our theology has been around justice and judgment. And we ask, well, why? yeah, why is God so angry? And when we think about it, for our tradition, now this wouldn't be the same for everyone, but for our tradition— uh, historically, when we think about judgment, we think about uh, what's the things God angry about? He's angry about like moral vices. So this would be things like lying. If you tell a lie, then it's really bad. God gets really upset. Or uh, drinking. We come really, really down hard on our teens to make sure that they don't go out and get drunk because it's a, it's a moral vice. Or gambling historically would also be another one of those things that our tradition has been like, ah, oh, this is a really bad moral thing. Uh, swearing, how many times you have to, I mean, Christians, we've developed a whole nother language. Ah, oh, shoot, geez, heck. They're all saying the same thing, but somehow we feel better about it because we've changed one letter. It's not like God's like, well, I thought you were gonna say this word, but now you're fine. You know, like it's, it's a weird thing that we've built into our thinking. But it's because swearing has often been related with really bad sin. And if it's a bad sin, then God's gonna be angry with us, so we avoid it or probably the granddaddy of all the things Christians shouldn't do is anything sexual, really. Um, Bernie talked about this a few weeks ago in his physicality talk, but um, sexual activity outside of marriage, um, same-sex activity, look pretty much even within marriage, let's be honest, 90% of the time Christians are like, look, we know you should do it there, but just don't tell us about it. Like, So often sex is another one of those big issues that God is angry about. And that's what we think about when we think about justice and judgment. And this will line up with a lot of the scriptures that we read. Um, Traditionally, our style of churches will preach and read a lot from the New Testament. So we'll read the gospels. um, We read a lot of Paul. So heaps of Paul. So you know the books like Romans or Corinthians or Ephesians, Galatians. You know, he wrote so many, Timothy, he wrote so many great books and we preach from them all the time. They're always in our preaching roster on Sundays. So You hear a lot of these verses, and it makes sense. I mean, Paul talked about sexual activity quite a bit. I mean, particularly, he had to talk about it in the Corinthians because the Corinthian church was just having sex with everybody. Like, everybody was just getting it on, and Paul was like, whoa, just chill out for a little while. And so that influences our theology. Do you hear what I'm saying? Our reading comes from a set, set of scriptures. Our thinking comes from our own tradition. And so when we think about justice or judgment, we can end up developing a bit of a blind spot because we focus on these things and it's so easy for us to miss some of the other things, perhaps the bigger picture of what God may be doing. Let me give you an example of what that might be. Let me introduce you to a guy named Reverend John Whiteley. Uh, Reverend John Whiteley was a Methodist missionary and he came to New Zealand in 1836. So he's born in the UK and came here to be a missionary. And he did a lot of great things when he first arrived. Um, I mean, compared to some of the other early missionaries that we had who weren't so great, at least when he came, he learned Te Reo Māori like really quickly, ended up working in the local communities, um, was really active and advocating for the Treaty of Waitangi. And then um, even after the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, he then worked hard to get Māori tribes to release the slaves that they'd captured. And then when the treaty at first was being, beginning to be dishonored by the crown that was seizing land illegally, he was one of the early advocates to say to the crowd, hey, you guys got to stop. Like you can't just take land. And so you can see he did some things well. He genuinely loved Jesus. He genuinely wanted to serve New Zealand and do what he thought was right. And when he thought about God's justice, he did work towards those things. I mean, spring the slaves and helping bring Maori become Christians. Those would have been very much influenced by his view of justice. The blind spots showed up a little bit later. As the land wars began to heat up, as the as the crown became more and more aggressive in taking more and more land, the issue kind of became a powder keg, explosive in the Taranaki region around the 1860s. This is where, at this time, John Whiteley was sent to go be a missionary, and so he's working with the Maori in Taranaki. And what's happened in the Taranaki region, if you're not sure about this time in history, is that heaps of settlers were arriving in that area. There was lots of really great fertile soil. It was great for farming, which is what the British were all about. And there was all this area, and so there was this great demand for land. And so the Crown and the New Zealand Land Company shows up, and they're looking to try and find ways to purchase land for all these new settlers that are coming in. But the thing is, the top chief there did not want to sell the land to the Crown. He's like, this is, this is our land. Historically, this has been our Iwi's land for generations, and we're not just going to sell it off to the crown. The issue began then when one of the lower chiefs, who wanted to stick it to the top guy, goes to the crown without anyone's permission and says, hey, we've got all this great land. I'll sell it to you for a really good price. And the crown knows that he really doesn't have claim. Like the crown knows this guy's just Low down in the ranks, he does not have the authority to sell land on behalf of this massive region, on behalf of all these people. But truth be told, the crown doesn't really care. I mean, they just really need to get the land for the settlers. And they know if they go with this guy, they can pay half the price for it. And so they do. They buy it from this low-level chief. And then the leader of the Taranaki district is like, hey, like, you can't do that. You can't just pretend to come and buy our land from some unauthorized person and then act like it's yours, but that's exactly what the crown did. The crown went forward and started sending out land surveyors. They started marking out the area, getting ready to parcel it off and sell it to all the different settlers. And the Māori are thinking, what do we do? Essentially, the crown is slowly just stealing our land from us because they did not buy it in any legal capacity. And so, never being violent, instead what they do is they say, we're going to go do essentially a peaceful protest. And they go out onto the land that's disputed, and they build a pa. And they settle there. And the crown, realizing the difficulty that this is going to cause, brings out the infantry, declares a state of martial law, sets up the cannons, and begins firing upon the pa. And now they're firing upon New Zealand citizens who have legally done nothing wrong, who've had no access to any court system, who've not had any representation in politics or government. Instead, the army has just pulled out the guns and started firing. Blatantly unjust, right? Now, Reverend John Whiteley, he's working in that area. He's been working with the Iwis there. He's been spending time Amongst them, he knows the situation. He knows today on He knows the history and he loves Jesus. He's an advocate for the gospel and wants all of the Māori in the Taranaki region to become Christians. How does he respond to this? I want to read you a couple of things that he wrote. Because he was under pressure, Right? Because he's stuck between these two worlds And one is a lot more powerful Because they got a lot more guns at the moment And also he He had some blind spots Because he knew that God was just But then Maori did some things that he didn't like That he didn't think was okay I mean they owned land communally In, in the British worldview, In proper civilization Everyone owns their own section. They didn't speak English well. They didn't live in the British culture. They were not civilized with the gospel. And so in the midst of this injustice, John Whiteley begins writing. And so in a letter to a friend, he writes this, a minister of the gospel, a representation of Jesus to the Maori. I think it should be the primary object of the general government to extinguish the native title as soon as practicable. With this view, I would accept all offers on the part of the natives, where it could be done safely. And even though those offers may only be of partial or disputed claims, leaving other claimants who might for the time be opposed to the sale to come in and offer their claims for sale whenever they might be so disposed. So it doesn't matter who's selling you the land. If someone's there, just buy it from them. It doesn't matter who else lays claim. It's my opinion that the crown should buy this land as soon as possible. He goes on to say, and I would have the natives paid as low a price as possible for these claims. The lower, the better, for themselves, for themselves. But even if high prices had to be given, the money would soon return into the hands of the Europeans and thus the colony be benefited." This is our minister, a representation of Jesus to the Māori. And this is his recommendation. Look, crown, buy the land and pay as low a price as you can get for it. And this, Whiteley thought, was a just thing to do. Because he goes on another letter to write. He doesn't just say this for political reasons. He justifies it theologically. So he finds a way to bring God into it to justify that what they're doing, firing on the Māori, who are being peaceful with cannons and guns to forcibly steal the land from them, it's justified because, he writes this later on, the natives are fighting for their lands, but the earth is the Lord's. And for 600 years, he's been waiting for them to occupy. 600 years more would find them with millions upon millions of still unoccupied acres. And providence, which is also known as God's will, indicates that now shall this portion of his earth be occupied by those who are able and willing to bring forth the fruits thereof. Which is to say, look, I know the Maldi are fighting for their land, but really all the earth belongs to God. And what God wants the earth to be is developed and cultivated and the Maldi are never going to cultivate it like the British. And so thus, it must be God's will that we take it from them and develop it into all that it can be. Does that sound like our God? Does that sound like his justice? I think it's a massive blind spot on the part of Whiteley. Now, remember, he's not a villain. He's done a lot of great things, but in his theology, he cannot see what justice looks like in this scenario. And so he ends up turning his back on the very people that I'm convinced Christ was with. I wonder what would have happened had he opened up his Bible and came to Micah if rather than reading from some of the New Testament passages or cherry-picking the old promises from the Old Testament about God's hope to prosper us and to give us the land that we desire, I wonder what would have happened had he opened up Micah and began to read from this prophet from the regions. Because what was happening in Micah's time was Jerusalem was beginning to thrive economically. Business was booming and the wealthy suddenly realized they had this great opportunity at their doorstep. They wanted to expand Jerusalem. They had big dreams and visions for all that Israel and Judah could be. And so they said, let's make it happen. And so they began to go and occupy areas of land around the city. Now, Israel, very much like Maldi people were very much connected to their land. You can't just uproot somebody from the land and assume it's fine, but these wealthy landowners didn't really care they went in and began to take land after land after land. And when, when anyone would go to the courts and they would dispute it and say, hey, look what they're stealing. Look what they're doing. We are supposed to be a nation based on God's laws, God's principles. He has given us all this land. It is ours. And they're stealing it. When they say this to the judge, it doesn't matter because the owners have already paid him off. And so they go to courts, and their courts and their cases are never even heard. And the wealthy landowners get away with whatever... They want to. And so Israel, remember, was supposed to be this light on a hill, this nation that represents what God's will is supposed to look like to the nations. And when gross injustice happened, there was one group that was meant to stand up, lift their voices and say, this is not how it's meant to be, the priests and the prophets. The poor could go to the priests and the prophets and say, look what has happened And the prophets would lift up their voices and with anointed by the spirit of God, call out the truth. Speak to the gross injustice of the courts. Speak to the landowners that are taking, that are consumed with their greed, that they have no care for their countrymen. That was their job. But the truth was they were on payroll. Oh, the prophets prophesied, but they prophesied God's peace, God's blessing because they got to go and sit down and eat at the table of all the leaders and politicians and landowners who were constantly expanding. And so Micah comes up from the regions and he walks up into Jerusalem and with guts unheard of unleashes upon them and speaks the truth to them. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds, Micah looks at them and says, I know at morning's light, they carry it out because it's in your power to do it. Micah looks at the judges and the leaders and you say, your leaders judge for a bribe. Your priests will teach for a price and the prophets will just tell fortunes for money. Yet they look to the Lord for support and say, is not the Lord among us? no disaster will come upon us but therefore because of you zion will be ploughed like a field jerusalem will become a heap of rubble and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets see because all these people were hiding behind the church they were hiding behind the temples they were hiding behind these blessings thinking surely god won't stop it because we're this chosen people god is going to be good to us but see god looks at that and he says no This temple means nothing to me. As long as you're doing what you're doing, this temple's not a temple to my glory. It's a temple to your own greed. This temple becomes a sanction for you to do whatever you want to do. And so God says, I'm not gonna let that happen. I'd rather let this all fall apart than be pulled in as if it's my will that you do this. What do you think Micah would have said to John Whiteley? What words do you think Micah would have shared What do you think Micah would have said when he walked into the settler churches in Taranaki who on the Sunday were worshiping God for his goodness while on Monday, the military was firing into their neighbor's fields? Micah understood that justice is at the very heart of God. It's not a side issue. It doesn't hang out on the peripheries. It is who God is. When God heard Israel's cry in Egypt, why did he hear it? Because they were slaves, they were poor, and they were oppressed. This morning, Craig again talked about when Gideon was there and they were overrun by the Midianites, and Israel cried out because they were oppressed. And in all the warnings throughout all of Deuteronomy, if you read it, God's warning to Israel is, look, I'm setting you up in land, but don't become like Egypt that you just left. Because if you do, the same thing will happen to you that happened to Egypt. Because God is always with the poor and the oppressed. It's who he is. So what does it look like when perhaps Christians actually stand up and speak? What do you think Micah would have said to those early churches? What do you think Micah would have said to John Whiteley? Well, fortunately, we've got a guy named Bishop George Selwyn. And again, none of these people are perfect. Uh, History isn't filled with heroes and villains. It's filled with complicated people who did good things and bad things. But in this case, Bishop George, he wrote a letter. And he wrote a letter specifically to the churches the Pakeha churches in Taranaki. And he wrote to them specifically about what was happening right outside their doorstep. And I'd like to read it to you because it's amazing. In this letter, he says, it is strange indeed that your advisors in the local newspapers who dwell so much upon the sixth commandment, which is thou shalt not commit adultery, should forget altogether that the same law has also said, thou shalt not covet. Oh, they may disguise it to their own consciences, but it is my duty as a minister of the law and of the gospel to lift up my voice against the publication of opinions, which would lead on to the sin of murder as the direct consequence of the sin of covetousness. I offer my countrymen the best assistance and influence with the native people in all just and lawful desires. So I do my best for Pakia when I can in the lawful areas, but I have no fellowship with covetousness because Ahab, an evil king of Israel, found it to be but the first step in the blood guiltness of murder. And surely there is enough blood already crying out again, out of the ground against the Christian nations of Europe, against Spain, against France and England to make us tremble for the issue of our own connection with Modi. I cannot remain silent while opinions are being expressed and plans proposed which, if you prove to be the stronger, would destroy the New Zealanders. Or if you prove to be the weaker, would destroy yourselves. Ooh! Ooh! It's so good, isn't it? Do you feel how refreshing it is when someone understands that justice is at the heart of the gospel? that says, I don't care what will happen to me and I know I'm going up against the big guy, but I can't sit back and be quiet while people are being trod underfoot. As a minister of the gospel, as a Christian, as someone who loves Jesus, I have to stand up and say, this is wrong. Oh, it's good, eh? Oh, it's good. He's the man, (laughs) utterly the man. And I wonder what those early churches would have thought. And as good as his words were, I'm saddened to think that I don't think they had a great impact because the blind spot was just too great. The question comes to us now, 150 years later from this, 150 years after Pariyaka. Who are we going to be? Because, truth be told, we come from a tradition that's not had a great track record with issues of justice. We've often majored on the minors and ignored the majors. We've closed our eyes so many times to the plights of our oppressed brothers and sisters. Or often when someone gets up to preach about justice, the common refrain you'll often hear is, oh yeah, that social justice stuff is good, but we just need to do the gospel stuff. We just need to preach the gospel and that's all that matters. As if, Justice is hanging off to the side. Like if we just preach Jesus is their savior and we get them into sit in church and be quiet and stop looking porn at their bedroom and stop lying as if that will magically fix all the problems. We don't need to talk to that if we can just fix the things in here. We'll just save them and forget about justice, but it doesn't work that way. Justice is not an addition to the gospel. It's not. It's not a side thing that if we get the time, we'll try and do a little bit if we can Justice lies at the very heart of God. It lies at the very heart of a gospel that comes and reconciles the sinners with the saved, that brings us together into a new humanity. Jesus Christ is out there beyond these walls, working amongst the poor, the oppressed, the needy amongst us. And we, as a church, have a question of whether we're going to go join him or not. I wonder, I've wondered this when preparing this. 150 years from now, somebody's going to be preaching about Tauranga and they're going to be preaching about Bethlehem Baptist and they're going to be thinking about the church there. When they talk about the issues of injustice that this church faces, what do you think they'll be saying? Will we end up more like Whiteley or will we end up more like Selwyn? When you think about our society, what are the issues that we face? Because every generation will have issues of systemic injustice that they have to stare down. And every generation has to decide whether they're gonna pick up and get in amongst it and try and stop it, or whether they're just gonna let the wheel roll past and pretend it's not gonna happen while they sit in church and sing happy songs. We face that question. What is our issue? Is it mental health? Is it the rocket high suicide rate which we face? Is it the homelessness that plagues our cities? Is it the poor that still struggle to try and get up when the gap between the rich and the poor is getting greater every year? Is it the overrepresentation of Maori in prisons yet their underrepresentation in positions of power? What is our issue? Because I promise you, Jesus is at work at every single one of those stages. And we have the question of whether we will go out and participate in that or not. Justice lies at the heart of God, at the heart of the gospel, and at the heart of the church. Let us be a church that responds to that call and lifts up our voice while we can. Let's stand as we pray. Lord, as we think about justice, God, I stand here um, humble and in some ways terrified because it's easy for any of us to talk a big talk about the people out there, but not realize that the problem lies within my own heart as well that I perpetuate systems of injustice, that I benefit from things that are holding other people back and that I have blind spots and I can't always see it. Jesus, would you send prophets and would you send your word to open our eyes? Don't let us sit with our hands covering our ears, pretending like nothing's happening. We don't want to be those people that sit in the settler church, pretending like our neighbors aren't getting bombed next door to us. Lord, break our hearts. Help us to see ourselves not always as the heroes, but see ourselves as people in need of saving. Help us to recognize that we aren't always Peter, but we're often Judas. And then use us, God, for your kingdom. Let this church and let the churches of New Zealand 150 years from now be a sign of your love for the least among us. Let us be taken with a passion for your justice that shakes our bones and that lifts us out from these four walls and sends us out into our communities to love those around us. God, make us your church and bring your justice to this nation, we pray. Amen.